Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. I'm Juliet Ori, and alongside me today is my co-host, Philippa Sturt, who's on board and helping the cause of bringing the fascinating business stories of Ori Clark's clients to a wider audience with this podcast. And if you like what we do here, please do rate, review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at biz without BS. That's at biz, B-I-Z, without B-S. Now, with that being said, hello, Philippa. How are you? Who is our guest today? And what are we going to be talking about? Hi, Juliet. I'm very well. Thank you very much. Today's guest is my lovely friend, Christine Armstrong. Christine is a researcher, author, and vlogger on parenting, work-life balance, and the future of work. Her current focus is hybrid work and how we manage our home and work lives. She previously co-founded Jericho Chambers, an early example of flexible and hybrid work. Christine is the author of The Mother of All Jobs, How to Have Children and a Career and Stay Sane-ish published by Bloomsbury and writes regularly for The Times and Telegraph and is a contributing editor of Management Today. So we're in very good company. Christine, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So Christina, what is keeping you busy at the moment? Right. So I am a researcher and I talk to people all the time about remote working, hybrid working, what kind of work they want, which I was doing before for uh, in the context of parenting, but also some stuff around diversity and making life in the office work. So I am really excited at the moment because I'm talking to everyone about how it's going to be whenever the government lifts restrictions, how offices are going to work, how they're going to work, what they want. And it's a really exciting time. And do you have the answers to that? I don't think anyone does, honestly, because nobody can genuinely tell you what's going to happen. So what I have is what people want, what bosses want, and some experience of what we tried to do at Jericho. And I think it's going to be a big muddle and a big experiment, and it's going to be fascinating to see it play out. So what do the bosses want? So a lot of bosses culturally like to see people. It makes us feel more in control. We know what's going on. It's very reassuring. Now, that's often cloaked, of course, in client need. Everybody says, oh, well, you can't be out and about because clients need you here. But of course, clients don't really care where you are because they they don't expect to be able to see you. So actually, clients are much more flexible than people generally give them credit for, as long as they can get hold of what they need at the time. But a lot of bosses have grown up in a world where people are visible, where they were a bum on a seat. They've been surprised how much they've enjoyed remote working. And because they tend to have bigger houses, they're like, you know, it's hanging out with the dog, get my vegetable delivery box, you know, actually it's quite nice. But still, they're kind of like, there's something in them, they need to be back and they need other people to be back. Control. Control, yes, top down. And so, and some of them are extroverts and that's, you know, we reward extroverts in business. So they quite like people, so they're quite excited to be back. Whereas, of course, in the workforce, there's just huge divisions. And it, you know, there are loads of different polls. You've read them all. But broadly speaking, if you categorise them, you go, about 20% of people who never want to come back to the office again. Quite likely introverts, you know, quite likely you've got a home office, plenty of space, a bit of a commute. You've got 20% of people who never want to work at home again, who have a flat share, live in town, you know, like the energy of the office, enjoy being around people. And then you've got 60% in the middle who want a bit of both. So it is, it's a big old complex thing for people to sort out. And what, how did you run things and how were things at Jericho? So Jericho was an interesting model. Um, It was a group of consultants. We had a beautiful office in Farringdon. 
And basically, we had no hours, no holidays. People came and went as they saw fit. And so what we learned from that experience was that you originally, we hosted loads of lunches and breakfasts and training events and talks to try and get people together. And that doesn't work at all. Because actually, people are busy doing work and they don't have loads of time for that. And also, it doesn't actually forge relationships the way that yelling at a broken printer does. So you need some of that nitty gritty kind of stress, some of that, but you don't need it all of the time. So somewhere between two and four days, you can build those relationships. Somebody, I was talking to Claire Cohen this week, who's an editor at The Telegraph, is on sabbatical, she's writing a book about friendship. And she says that to make a friendship takes about 50 hours, which seems conservative to me. But I think it's the same with good working relationships. You know, you need real time of working alongside each other. And then you have to maintain that going forward, right? I think that's a lot of hours. Do 50 you? Hours. Well, no, but I think you can make a quite a sort of surface friendship very quickly, right? With somebody, if you happen to just, you know, you meet them, you have roughly the same interests, et cetera, et cetera. To, but, but to make that real deep connection with somebody, I think it does take a while. A best friend is 200 hours, apparently. Oh, my. It's mm, a lot of time. Tell me, on your people being able to come, go, take as much holiday, all of that, how did you pay them? So they were freelancers. So that's the difference with Jericho. So they were basically paid for what they did. And there was a very, very direct correlation between how much time you turned up and how much work you got. And we were never able to break that. There is just something about visibility where you go, oh, new clients come in, you come and help me. And it's, you know, it's really difficult. And I don't think the technology is there to totally overcome that. But I think it does depend on the kind of job you do. If you do a very regular thing, say you do the end of month billing and the information's there, then you can do that fairly regularly remotely. You don't need to be in the office every week. But if you're, you know, driving a new design of a product, then you probably do need to be there more. And it's getting that balance and also getting past the whole open plan thing, which has been so disruptive. Because I've also seen that the other way, though, where you people are in an office, an assistant sits opposite a partner. I'm thinking about law firms, obviously. And so that partner just happens to take that assistant because they're always in front of their eyeline to everything and the other assistants don't get as much of a look in. So, you know, in some ways, having everybody working at that slight distance means people think more about who they're going to use for something and who the best person for that particular job is. And as you know, some law firms have had to put in systems to make sure that doesn't happen. So you can't automatically go to you because you will sit next to me and I quite like you, you're funny. So you can have all the work. Now they have to go through systems that allocate them someone so it's not unfair. So we'll need to see more of that. Actually, a former managing partner of CMS, Dick Tyler, said to me that hybrid work feels like um, the introduction of Dress Down Fridays, where having never had to think for one minute what anyone wore suddenly people were going well is a brown trainer still a trainer and is a black jean is that jeans or is it trousers and he's just like oh god I've never had to think about these things why are we having rows about them and I think it's going to be very similar we're going to have to really think about stuff we've never had to think about before but do you feel people should be given parameters or do you think they should just be left to do as they please. It depends on the culture of your organisation. It depends what you're doing, what you're running, how your what your team wants. It depends how prestigious your organisation is. I think prestige is going to be a big piece of this. If you're Goldman Sachs and you've spent a billion pounds on your central London office, you're not going to say, tell you what, everyone, just well, stay at home. <laughs> yeah. So all those factors are going to come together and it's going to be different for every organisation, right? And that's going to impact your recruitment and your culture. So what's the hardest thing you do in your job and how do you deal with it? So a lot of what I do 
is to go and interview people in organisations and find out what they really think about stuff and then go and report it to the leaders, whoever's commissioned me, you know, the managing director, managing partner, CEO, whatever. And that's really easy. And whenever I tell them what everyone's saying, they go, right, yeah, that's really important. I really get it. The hard bit is getting them to do anything about it because then they kind of go into, oh, well, if we did that, this would happen. If we do that, I'll tell you what, we'll do it again next year, shall we? Come back same time? And you're like, no, you have to do something or with the Or talk about it endlessly. Exactly. And work ourselves, oh, we'll take it to the board and then it'll just, you know, fall off the end of the agenda. So for me, it's finding the information for me is the easy bit because people love to talk about what's on their mind. The hard thing is getting people to actually act. Which doesn't surprise me because I think the bigger the organisation, the more it's run by committee and the more you don't get anywhere. And I think hopefully the more nimble and the SME, they will act and they will do, which hopefully will then drive the bigger orgs. Is it hard though to get people to kind of spend the money on what is essentially culture? It depends. They come when they've got a problem. So the irony is they come when they've got a real problem. So I'll give you a real life example of a firm that came and said, we have no women in the pipeline, really. We do, we kind of know why, but we need to understand it at a more structural level. Can you go and talk to people, find out? And I talked to everyone in this business, it felt like. I mean, I genuinely feel, like, <laughs> honestly, I spoke to so many people, switch to the men, the women, the senior people, the junior people. You go back and you go, these are your problems. It's really, really clear. And there are three things that you need to do. And they come back and go, right, okay, so what we thought we'd do is some diversity training. Which of those three things that are big and structural that I have suggested touches diversity? I know diversity training will cost you 20 grand, it'll be really easy, but equally, it's not going to change anything. And you haven't had a senior female person who's an internal promotion since 2004. So what the hell are you doing? One of the changes that the, the workforce really wanted, and it's a, a younger workforce coming through, was to say, we want equality of maternity and paternity leave. It wasn't about parenting, but that was just one of the things that came out that said, you know, men are really encouraged not to take any, and women are being penalised. So it was quite a big conversation. Somebody very senior said, we can't possibly give men three months leave because it would really damage their careers. Which <laughs> was total silence. <laughs> the tumbleweed rolled across the table. A shot intake of breath. I say, like, I think this is some of the stuff you asked me to look into. <laughs> <laughs> the nightmare. Uh, so what's the most uncomfortable truth about being in business? I think it's that business was designed for an idealised version of dad in the tiger who came to tea in sort of 1950s, mm. 1960s. Daddy's beer. Yeah, you know, drank daddy's beer, daddy came home with a brilliant idea. And there's, you know, we work the hours, we work in places that assume that there is a full-time caregiver that's running the rest of our lives, that's doing the dry cleaning and organising the shopping and feeding the dog. And that person doesn't exist. We now live in a dual income society and we don't know where that caring is supposed to go and we tinker around the edges of that but ultimately people in professional services jobs work more and more and more hours and that has got worse in hybrid not better in remote sorry in covid not better so you know that is the uncomfortable truth that we are very very bad at tackling if we remain wedded to success being linked to 80-hour weeks and a macho machismo around that, then that is, by definition, keeping those jobs for the people who are able, willing, ambitious, dare I say, testosterone fueled enough to keep doing that and doing that. And that means that it's very hard to drive change because they have the power. So I agree. I think change is beginning to happen, though. I would hope, but I don't see that there's easy answers on it. But I'm hoping the past year will have changed things, no? 
So it'll be really interesting to see whether the past year, whether what comes out of it makes it better or worse. So if you're sort of playing with this, you could go, okay, so say there's an organisation that says, we're going to go hybrid, you can choose when you come in and when you don't. If you then end up with the people who don't have caring responsibilities, who can get on the early train coming in, and the people who are doing, I mean, now I've got three kids, so I have three drop-off times and three pick-up times every day because of COVID. So I'm probably the least likely person to be on the seven o'clock train. I mean, obviously my household range is slightly different, I probably could, but I'm unusual. So we could end up with actually more division if we're not careful. That's kind of going back to the Dick Tyler point. You have to think about these things. Otherwise, we may default to accidentally actually excluding more people. So it's really important that we think about it in a really clear-sighted way. And it's really important we understand from our teams and employees what it is that's going on in their lives that makes it complicated. Totally agree. But I don't think you have any idea until you necessarily have kids or have to care for someone or any of those things that suddenly life is not about you. Well, that's the problem. The government didn't mention gender issues during lockdown at any point in the SAGE meetings until they talked about how young men might not comply with lockdown rules. Why young men? don't know that that was their only address of gender with all of the homeschooling with all of the impact on female dominated sectors with all of the impact on caring and all that they never thought about it they never thought about it not because they're mean but because it doesn't touch their life experience they've never had to think about it So there's two things that I think very specifically would make a difference. One of them is business-related, which is that businesses are held accountable for the gender pay gap. And I think that is vastly unfair on business. I don't know why business doesn't say, we are willing to take responsibility for our share of what we do to contribute that. But until the government provides universal, affordable childcare, then we are pushing people out of the workforce for two to three years and then saying, why do they get paid less? Why is it hard for them to get back in? So I think that, you know, business has a really important voice on this. And then government does. The government has spent, some might argue wasted, 38 billion pounds on track and trace, which we all know hasn't worked very well. The estimate for providing universal free childcare, not even affordable, is about five or six billion And you get a huge uplift in terms of tax returns, in terms of contributions to the economy. So there's loads of things we should be thinking about really seriously, but we're not. So I totally agree in all that you've said. I definitely think we have to resolve childcare. My fundamental is I don't know whether I agree with maternity pay. Ooh, go for it. And the reason being that I think that we should incentivize and help mums retrain or do different after birth because I don't think when you become so I am I will confess up I was running a pretty successful business doing pretty well I had children I didn't think that was going to alter my career in any shape or form I failed to take on board that therefore there were two little people that required help and assistance and and I looked around the house and realized oh shit that's me Um, And then realising, Christ, I can't do what I did before, or I could, but I won't then see my children. So you have decisions to make, and I know that there are people that make those decisions to purely pursue career, not see and carry on. Trying to find the balance is the hardest, but I don't know any professional woman that was doing the job before children then does exactly, well, hardly any. I did know a handful, but actually now most of those, after a few years of it, have given up. Most, and, and what does upset me is so many of the workforce and so many really bright, amazing women, and some men, 
are, are missing out and not feeling that they can go back. And I think that's the part where I'm like, we have to create roles, we have to tap into that workforce, and we have to find a way. But the interesting thing is that one of the factors that is more likely to make women leave the workforce is their partner having a really good, in inverted commas, job. So if your partner's got a really full-on white-collar job, so say you're married to, I don't know, an accountant at a big management consultancy, the chances are you'll be pushed out of work because the hours that he will be expected to work will mean that you, somebody has to be the carer and because you gave birth, it will be you. So unless we're willing to address the whole of it, like the whole extreme hour culture, we will keep pushing people out of the workforce. So actually, we have to think about this holistically. And we've got a new generation of men coming up who's saying, I don't want to be my dad. I know I'm not living in the 50s. And I know we can't pay our rent and mortgage unless both of us work. And it shouldn't just be my partner's job to do that. So I want to be able to do it. But my workplace is not supportive of a bloke going and saying, I want to take paternity in a significant way in most cases. I know there are exceptions of Eva. Great, fantastic. So I think that's the kind of stuff that we need to think about rather than retraining the women. We've got to get it out of being a women issue. So tell us a bit about how you ended up where you are now and and what was the impetus for, for a start, the mother of all jobs? Not dissimilar to you, actually. So I uh, did politics at university. I went to work for APCO, which is a public affairs company, worked in America and Canada and the UK. And then I went into an advertising agency called BBDO in a communications role. But when I got there, we had somebody running our global insight and research reports and she resigned, had a big fight papers in the air left. And somebody said, could you run our research for a bit? And I just loved it. It was what I was born to do. Uh, I just love talking to people. I love getting it all together, pulling the stories together, understanding what's going on. And it literally, so I was running these global reports and just traveling all over the world, presenting them to clients. It was fantastic. And then I had a baby and they pushed me out literally the day I got back. And so I was left standing in a street corner, deep breathing into a paper bag, uh, because basically said, you come back three days a week and do our PR if you want to. So I didn't know what to do with my rage. So I went and got another job immediately, which was a disaster um, in a research company that didn't suit me at all. Hated it. Didn't know what to do with myself. So I thought the best thing to do would be to get pregnant again, because then I could go on maternity leave. <laughs> Strangely, it didn't actually help that much. I mean, she's lovely, but you know, it was a bit of a chaotic time. Then went back for reasons I can never explain after the second baby. And, um, and then just walked out one day, just like, this is completely hopeless. Then co-founded Jericho Chambers, communication consultancy, but I did a lot of research and insight, which I really enjoyed, except that immediately after signing the papers to open their four co-founders, I realised I was pregnant for the third time. <laughs> so my, my sort of career is littered with babies all over the place. So I remember board meetings where we were setting out where she was literally asleep in the office sink like, because there was nowhere else to leave her. So, uh, yes, so we set up Jericho. I spent five or six years there, and that was great, really suited me. And the book really came out of, after I couldn't make it work at the research agency, I started interviewing loads of what we call power mums. There were some power dads about what was going on. And I just realized there were two stories. There's a public story that people are able to tell about their journey. And then there's a private story, which is much darker and more complicated about marriages, about pressure, about stress, about depression, about sleeplessness, about drinking. And there was just a lot that people can't say if you put them on a podcast like this and ask them to tell their story. And so I wanted to tell them those stories. And really, that's what the book is about, is about that this is really tough. There are ways through it. But as you said, no one tells you how tough it's going to be before you get into it. Oh, the, the, it's the hardest thing you can it do. Is. It's potentially the most rewarding, but it is the hardest, bleakest. And you meet those mothers that are like, this is amazing. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
So you have to find your kindred spirits. You and, do. And the ones, like with any of those things, that those that you feel more attuned to and those that you're not. So I have a bit of a theory on this. You know that Cosmo line from the 70s about having it all? Like, I think in the 70s, weirdly, there was loads of discrimination, there was loads of things wrong, but there was something that was helpful, which was no phones, no laptops, uh, no Blackberries. So when you interview people who worked, women who worked in that era, they're like, God, we had trouble with the men and they were being harassed and all that sort of stuff, and loads of other issues. But when you left work, you left work and you went home. And generally you went home at five or six, you didn't leave at seven, eight or nine o'clock at night. So although it was very hard in other ways, some of it worked better than what we have now in many cases. I think that the ability, the communication that is out there now and the fact that no one respects you're on holiday, well, you've still got a phone. I'm still going to call you. I'm still going to hunt you down. Yeah. There is no non-obtaining, no downtime. Yeah. I mean, the, the, sort of the book is full of those stories, but there's one woman who's senior in HR. She's talking about global redundancies and she's got three kids. She's supposed to be in a work from home day. She's like a job share. And so she shuts her patio door with the kids inside the kitchen, goes to the end of the garden. The children are hammering, are screaming with their faces pressed together. They want their dinner. And she is at the end of the garden, just pretending this is a completely normal call and she's totally in control. I mean, that is happening day after day everywhere around us. And it's certainly been happening in lockdown. But then I have loved this past year over the fact that, in fact, everyone's been able to be honest about it. And people have recognised it a lot more because you see a newscaster with his two children in the background and that yeah. kind of piece. Yeah, I've done, I've done, you know, webinars where men have cried, women have cried. I mean, it's really all come out of the works in a way. It's been so visceral for people. But also, there are a lot of people who are genuinely traumatised. I was talking to somebody today who said, I have PTSD from homeschooling. I can never do it again. If they shut my school, I am not doing it. They will just be on their devices. I don't care. So we have damaged people who are coming out, blinking into the sunlight, absolutely traumatised. What's your biggest realisation through failure? It is that you have to quit. Sometimes you have to quit. I think we have this whole... It took me a long time to learn that. Yeah, you do. We have this whole bullshit about grit. I'm really anti-grit at the moment because grit is useful, right? If you are trying to, I don't know, get survive on a boat that's sinking, right? You need a bit of grit. But if you are in a job that is draining your energy, that is negative, that is bad for your soul, you need to quit. And you need to quit as soon as possible so that you can find space for the other things that you want to do. So I think quitting is a failure and it feels like a failure when you do it, but actually it's the only way to renew. Can we dub in applause? It feels <laughs> like we should... The least yeah. I expect. <laughs> and now a quick word from our sponsor. At Uri Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients. And if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Recently, Dominic Frisby sat down with Andy Ori and Mike Darby to talk about online cloud accounting. I think the base point is that you put stuff in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere at any time on your mobile phone, at your computer, at your desk. Why have it fixed to a location? It's a huge advantage to put stuff in the cloud. It means that a small mobile phone with a browser can have the computing power of an enterprise system anywhere in the world. 
what it then is leading to is information is becoming real time, is being entered as you go, not historically. And then the third thing that you're talking about is that as you get into that position, that anyone can plug into it, anyone can see this data, anyone can access this data, and this data is real time. The revenue want to tax it, and the revenue want to access it. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Who out there can we look to to learn from in business right now? Okay, so I'm a bit allergic to the heroization of particular business leaders. It really... It worries me because we are all deeply flawed and we tend to fall back on rather sort of macho men who are quite good at self-promotion. So I'm loath to answer this question, Juliet. And often, you know, they do that day in the life on the go, I get up at five o'clock and I work out my cross trainer for two hours and then I have a smoothie and then I run with my dog for three hours and then I go to my office and I, I do some very high profile. And you're like, nobody actually lives like this. And, you know, where are the other people? It's so many questions. So I think that there are lots of people to learn from in business, but there are lots of people around us every day who are just getting on with their jobs, who are charming, who are funny, who are lovely, who are never going to be visible publicly, but who are doing a great job. And we all learn from, and I think holding on to those people in our lives is more important than heroizing Terry Leary or something. I don't know, one of that lot. I think what you've said is true in that we all have to accept none of us are perfect in life and there is no perfection. And the more we try and idealise people, the harder it gets, you know. And I, I sort of feel like I'm not a huge fan of Sheryl Sandberg's book, lean in because I I see the world quite differently um, and it's got a particular style but then people then go all out to criticize her and tear her apart and and it's we don't need to idealize her or tear her apart she is a very famous very you know successful woman and that's great but we don't need to idealize her or demonize her and I'm very nervous of that as a cultural phenomenon. And what's the best bit of advice anybody's ever given you? So I did a vlog on this recently, and um, it was it was Benjamin Zander, uh, which is random because he's the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. But he did a speech when I was at an advertising agency, and he's, he told this story about how he used to bring an American group of music students to London, and they would kind of go on this cultural journey, and they'd go to all these amazing shows and art galleries and concerts. And he got them incredible tickets one night for this event, and none of them showed up. And he was absolutely livid. And he went home to his wife as a therapist and said, I'm so angry. They didn't show up. They embarrassed me. They missed this amazing concert. And she said, what did you do wrong? He said, what do you mean? What do I do wrong? He said, no, why didn't you tell them it was important? Why didn't you tell them why they need to go? Like, take responsibility for what happens in your teams. And that has really stayed with me. If a project doesn't get delivered, if somebody sends it in late, if they miss the point entirely, I always come back to what didn't I tell them that would have enabled them to do the job that I needed? Or did I ask the wrong person? And what it does is it takes all of my instinctive, everybody else is a moron except for me, line out of my head and makes me take risks. And then I fix it because I don't like feeling that I've screwed it up. And what are you most excited about for the future of your business? I'm really excited about seeing what happens next. I think I'm just so nosy. I just, I'm like consuming information. I'm absorbing the surveys, the case studies, the people I'm talking to. I'm really excited about the next two years and how it's going to work out. And I really hope it's going to be a much better way of working. And we're going to really figure out how to 
you know, put some back some divisions between work and life? Because it used to be you went to work and then you stopped and now we don't. So how do we start thinking about how to compartmentalise a little bit more? How do we allow people to be really healthy and well at work and at home? I think it's a really, really exciting opportunity and I just can't wait to see how it all goes. I think it will be fascinating on how we measure these things and how do you do and I, I think people are accepting that a nine to five doesn't mean that you work that productively, particularly. And actually, I think some working mums are way more productive because you come in and you've got two hours and you're like, right, I've got to nail this. I don't have the whole day to spread this out and have a little chat and a this and a that. I think the whole deep work stuff is really interesting. It's like if you go in and focus, you can only really do four to five hours a day. But in a lot of professional services job, we're now spending 80, 90 yeah percent of our time communicating and if we could start putting limits around that communication go back to doing what we're paid to do we could be loads more productive in less time and that would feel really productive it would feel great right because you'd know what you were doing now you may have answered this already because i think your answer might be free childcare. right but if there was one thing in the world you could change over the next five years what would it be I feel like i need to think of a different answer then yeah i feel like you do sorry but that when was me. you mean free childcare. Totally, what kind of childcare? Round-the-clock childcare. That is difficult. They've tried that in Eastern European countries. I'd read a case study ages ago, somewhere in Eastern Europe where people were working shifts, they tried to sort of do overnight care. It's quite difficult to deliver. You won't be surprised to hear. I don't know that it needs to be free. I think it could be subsidised. It just needs to be affordable to most people. And at the moment, it isn't. So I'm not sort of out there with a placard saying it has to be 100% universal free childcare. Although people I know and respect would say that's true and maybe it is but it definitely needs to be significantly more affordable comes, than now the problem comes if you, you you know you don't have a massively high paid job and you find yourself working purely to pay the childcare to go to work and then the childcare provider is so badly paid they can't afford to have their own children taken care of and you end up with this kind of ladder down society where the consequences are being felt by the most vulnerable yep. so i i do think that affordable childcare is a really important bit of it are you up for female communes oh quite possibly i mean what does that look like tell me more what are you offering well i think <laughs> i'd really i'm worried now but carry on what about female communes yeah. well the fact that actually what they're saying the hardest thing is it that... takes a village yes and the hardest thing is we're having children later, some, um, and the fact that you're not living near family or friends, that actually if there's a crew of you and you can work shifts and help each other, that you need a team of people. So I think that there are people who are brilliant at looking after children and I respect them so much. Like watching somebody who really connects with children is a magical thing, right? But I know that that's not me and I guarantee that no one would want me to look after their children. So I think you do need to leave it in the hands of people who are naturally really great at it and reward them properly for doing it. My personal view. I wouldn't disagree. I wouldn't disagree. So what are your top three reads? So I'm, again, I'm going against the direction that this is intended and say, let's talk Twitter. I think Twitter is really an important read. I think you need to know culturally what's going on. The second thing, which is not a read, so I'm cheating completely, I think everyone should be listening to the Moth podcast, which sounds such a dodgy premise. It is literally just people telling stories, but they are the most amazing stories. And it's such a brilliant brilliant way to understand how to tell a good story and how to engage an audience. I just think everyone should listen to it. And I also think, and this is very boring, it's very boring for me, but I do also think Harvard Business Review is really good. <laughs> and actually they do really good articles and good data. So I think the combination of those things, you can pretty much do anything you want. 
I like that a lot. Yeah. Okay, so that brings us to our favourite part of the show, the business versus bullshit quick fire round. D, cue the music. I actually want buzzers for this, but anyway, I've yet to be promoted to be in charge of a... Anyway where we'll reel off a list of key terms and all you have to do is tell us where you think it's business or bullshit. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm excited. Diversity quotas. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> See, the truth comes out now. I think, I'm going to say business, but very hesitantly, very carefully. Stand-up meetings. Business. Coffee. Business. Slogans in the workplace. Bullshit. Pub lunches. Bullshit. Formal work clothes. Whatever you want, really. Bullshit. I don't know. I don't wear them. Financial reporting standards. Oh, God. Shoot me. Non-executive directors. (laughs) I'm sure there are some great ones out there. (laughs) Okay, I think that answers that one. Board minutes. Uh, Probably business. NDAs. Bullshit. Email. Too much business. Contracts. Business. Acronyms. Mostly bullshit. Office dogs. Brilliant. There we have it. Great stuff. Okay, so Christine, if our listeners want to find out more about you online, what's the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn, weekly vlog, me talking about stuff. Christine Armstrong like it a lot. Okay, so there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, Christine, for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listeners. We'll be back with another episode in a fortnight. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Biz Without BS. That's B-I-Z Without BS, where you'll find more helpful business content. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for us using the hashtag bizwithoutbullshit and hashtag Ori Clark, O-U-R-Y, Clark without an E. Until next time, cheerio. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. To find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at auriclark.com. That is contact at O-U-R-Y-C-L-A-R-K.com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.